The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code THEGIST. It's Thursday, November 13th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So there are some topics that you don't even have to fill in the details. Some proper nouns, then when paired with a phenomenon, might not even warrant a story. You just know they're right. Like, uh, here we go. Palin family brawl. That would be an example. Or um, Jennifer Aniston wronged. Canadians reasonable. Right? Here's another one dominating the news today. FIFA corrupt. So maybe you saw the story today, a big report as issued by FIFA came out and they cleared FIFA, FIFA cleared FIFA of any wrongdoing in how they awarded the World Cups that went to Russia and Qatar. Never mind that the British House of Commons had hearings that documented bribery and never mind the BBC doc that they put together where they showed all the history of FIFA corruption and the Sunday Times getting guys on the record talking about bribes and the fact that a guy that FIFA itself said accepted bribes, got a $1.5 million payment 10 days after the Qatar and Russia bids were announced. Never mind that. And and never mind that there's a U.S. former prosecutor who actually wrote the report, who hates that the report is not being fully released, but just a summary of the report's being released, right? This is like if the Star report were not endorsed by Star, or if Warren of the Warren Commission were like, I wouldn't want my butt with that report. Did he? I think he was from Baltimore, right? He didn't have an accent. Anyway... I don't want to even talk about any of that. I want to make two points. One, this report that FIFA says clears us says that the Japanese engaged in vote trading with Russia. This is clearly illegal. That alone should get the World Cup stripped from Russia. However, they buy Russia's defense, which is no, it didn't happen. But the emails that we sent to prove this have all been destroyed, and so were the computers that the emails used to live in. We destroyed them all. So you got one country admitting that they engaged in essentially bribery, one country denying it, and FIFA's like, yeah, we'll, we'll believe the denials. I mean, it comes from Russia. That, that Vladimir Putin, he doesn't appear to be particularly skullduggerous, Right. The second thing that I've been thinking about is more global. I think that when it comes to corruption, you don't want to be kind of corrupt or a little corrupt. You either want to be not corrupt, which probably won't help you, but you can sleep at night, or you want to be really corrupt. You want to be irredeemably, thoroughly, comically corrupt, and then the world will develop a sweet spot for your corruption, right? Like a politician from New York is arrested for corruption. You know what? That guy deserves to go to jail. But a politician from New Jersey is arrested for corruption. Come on, it's New Jersey. That's what they do. And FIFA has hit that. They are comically corrupt. They're not UN for oil versions of corruption. They are not Cold War border crossing guards corrupt. They've shot the moon on corruption. Of course, they say the moon shot itself with a very expensive Italian-made hunting rifle that was a gift from FIFA. On the show today, in the spiel, I will talk about an economist who's getting a lot of blowback for saying the American people aren't sophisticated when it comes to economics. All right, quick, how does a bond's price correlate to its yield? Got that answer? It's an inverse proportion. And then we'll talk to the main subject of the new Jon Stewart film, Rosewater. But first, a little one question, one question only. 
President Obama was in Myanmar, what was once called Burma today. This was the country that was once cited as a big foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration. It was democratizing, but things seem to have slid. In fact, they definitely have slid. We've documented this on our show before with Jonah Blank, senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation, who for a dozen years was the policy director for South and Southeast Asia on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Hello, Jonah. Hi, Mike. So I want to play one question, one question only with you, okay? Sounds good. So we know that Myanmar was looking more open. They definitely have since cracked down a little bit. Maybe things aren't as optimistic. What is the benefit of the president being there? Won't the ruling junta or the rulers of Myanmar just say, yeah, sure, thanks, Mr. President, and then when he leaves, go back to things as they were the day before? Well, I think that if the president had the option of attending the ASEAN conference in any other country in Southeast Asia, he probably would have picked it. But you go to a conference where the conference is held. While he's there, however, he does have the opportunity to really talk tough with President Tian Xian, the uh, civilian leader of the military junta-backed government, and really give him some, uh, some tough words about what's got to be done about political reform and about protection of the minority Rohingya community. I am still very mildly optimistic. Why? Because... Myanmar was such a bad news story for so long, for nearly four decades, really, that I just have to hold on to some optimism that what we're seeing is a bit of backsliding rather than a complete reversion to the dismal days of the past. The mildly optimistic but extremely reformed Jonah Blank. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you. Did you know the month of November is upon us? Movember is when you are supposed to grow your mustache. I quote today's New York Times, If you are waiting for mustaches to make a comeback, well, you may have to keep waiting. Further on in the piece, ever since the beard made a roaring comeback in the late aughts, style watchers have been waiting for the mustache to return. Like the beard, the mustache was a symbol of virility. It seemed overdue. Unlike the beard, however, the mustache has serious baggage. Now here's the thing. Why would I mention this? Why would I denigrate the idea of mustaches, not only during Movember, but during a paid ad for Harry's, which has partnered with Movember. And I'll tell you why. It's because Harry's is both celebratory of mustaches and Movember, and also really, when you think about it, the enemy of mustaches. And I think maybe a little resentful in a way of the beard. Harry's is going to take care of your beard, be it your one-day beard, your three-day beard, or your damn hipster beard. Harry's is the official razor partner of Movember, but more to the point, Harry's is an excellent product that I use not every day, but every third day about two days ago for me. Harry's was created by two guys who are passionate about creating a better shaving experience for everyone. So they bought a factory in Germany and they're offering you this offer. It's a starter shave set for 15 bucks. You get a razor, three blades, and your choice of shave cream or a foaming gel. To get it, go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code THEGIST with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code THEGIST at checkout for $5 off, and change the way you shave forever. In 2009, Mazir Bahari, an Iranian-born resident of the UK, 
was covering the elections in his home country. The Daily Show did an interview with him, the conceit of which was that the correspondent, Jason Jones, expected to find a terrorist hiding behind every minaret. Instead, he found lovely, reasonable people like Mazir Bahari. I asked him the question on every Westerner's mind. Why was his country so terrifying? In one word, misunderstanding. The two sides, they don't understand each other. They don't know the values of the other side. They don't know how to talk to the other side. And actually, I've written about that for Newsweek magazine several times. Yeah, I didn't understand a word of that. Mahmoud, can you translate this for me, please? Yes, he's saying that he's written about this problem that you have in Newsweek magazine, and you can read about it. Okay. What did he say? But that expression of reasonableness seemed to have inflamed ignorant Iranian authorities, the hardliners. Bahari was picked up by police and interrogated, sometimes brutally, for 118 days. He nicknamed his chief interrogator Rosewater, and now that's the name of a new movie directed by Jon Stewart. And Mazir Bahari is here. Thanks for coming in. Very nice to be here. So I just want to get straight. How important was the Daily Show bit? Because you were a real journalist. You Most of your day was doing real interviews, documenting the opposition, documenting Ahmadinejad supporters, not agitating. But then you go and do this Daily Show thing. Did that Was that the thing that really put you in their crosshairs? No, not at all. What happened was that in 2009, the Revolutionary Guards and the Supreme Leader of Iran, they had a plan. They wanted to incriminate the reformists within the government of Iran through some people who worked with Western organizations. So unbeknownst to all of us, all my actions before my arrest was monitored by intelligence agents. So when Jason Jones and his producer came to Iran and they wanted to interview me, we had a pre-interview, but also I gave them some names of different people that they could interview, some politicians, some musicians, different people. And unbeknownst to all of us, Someone was listening to our conversation. Mm -hmm. For some intelligence agents in Iran, anyone who has any kind of contact with foreigners is passing information and can be a spy. So when they arrested me, they charged me with spying for four different agencies. Israeli Mossad, the CIA, British MI6, and Newsweek. Uh, and I asked them, do you mean Newsweek magazine? They said, your quote-unquote magazine is part of the intelligence apparatus. Then in the absence of any evidence in order to incriminate me, to show me that I was a spy, because there was no evidence because I was not a spy, they brought forward this ridiculous evidence, including my appearance on The Daily Show. But that happened to be their most intelligent piece of evidence. Uh-huh. Then they asked me about my Facebook pages. Like, uh, for example, I was a member of Anton Chekhov yeah. uh, group, and they were wondering if Anton Chekhov is an uh, Israeli agent. Or the icing on the cake, of course, was Pauly Shore, because I and about seven or eight other people were part of the Pauly Shore Appreciation uh-huh. <laughs> Club on Facebook, and they wanted to know my connection with the Zionist agent Pauly Shore. Now, I have to say that I don't think liking Pauly Shore should be an arrestable offense, but it is it's it's somewhat a misdemeanor. Indif- okay. It's okay. a misdemeanor. Okay. It's not a crime. All right. You I, will, can, I, I, will, I think they should I'm a just, moderate. You I have to get a fine, that. I don't know, yeah. maybe $150 or something, but <laughs> it is not a crime, really. Right. Just playing Encino Man over and over again could be your punishment. That's a different <laughs> form of torture, of course. Now, I also want to be clear for our audience that you, you the brand of journalism you did 
said you weren't a crusading journalist. You weren't exactly an Anna Politskaya type. I mean, she was great. She was killed in Russia. You were doing explanatory stuff. You were helping, sometimes helping Western journalists, sometimes doing it yourself. I was a very moderate uh, person. I'm still a very moderate person. And they may, that's maybe what makes the Iranian government angry because I'm always for moderation. When Jason Jones asked me about Iran-America relations, I said that they, both governments have a lot in common. I think saying death to America is as idiotic as calling Iran part of the axis of evil. But of course, the extremists in Iran, like the extremists in this country, in the U.S., do not like moderates. When you were picked up, how vulnerable did you think you were? I, In the beginning, I thought it was... Uh, maybe misunderstanding because I did not know about their plan uh, for me. So uh, when I got, uh, when I was thrown into my solitary confinement, I thought I'm coming out and I write uh, an article called seven, seven Days in an Iranian Jail for Newsweek. But then, of course, one week became two weeks and then it just continued. And I knew that I'm in their hands. From the beginning, I, when I t started to talk to my, uh, it started uh, to be interrogated by my torturer, I knew that I'm fighting two different battles. On one hand, I was fighting a physical battle that was lost from the beginning because I was the prisoner, I had the blindfold on, and he was the captor, and he was a part of the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, but on the other hand, I also was fighting this psychological battle that I knew I could be the winner because I had lived a much richer life than he did. I was a more cultured person. I was more educated. I loved people uh, around me much more. I had many. I had traveled to many countries, and I knew that I. I, I was. I had the upper hand because if he had lived that life, he would not choose to be a torturer. That's a great way of thinking about it through day 10 or 20 or 30. But how do you develop and maintain the mental playbook? Your, your dad was detained by the Shah and died in prison. Your sister was detained by the current... Khomeini, Khomeini, no, previous, the past, yeah, in the 1980s. Oh, so yeah. all, the, all, the, all the leaders have gotten a member of your family. Exactly. But did... Their experience, you know, when you were a little boy thinking about your sister or hearing about your dad, did you say to yourself, if I was in that position, here's what I would do? Or, you know, how do you develop that mental playbook about how you're going to approach this unique, well, in your family, not unique, but this horrible situation? You, when you are in a solitary confinement, you're deprived of all your senses. You cannot see anything except for the walls around you. You cannot touch anything. The walls are thick. You cannot hear anything. But... You have your inner resources, and your inner resources are your life experience, are the conversations that you've had with your loved ones or colleagues or friends or, you know, different people, the places that you've traveled, the books that you've read, the music. So you become resourceful through your inner resources. And the richer life you've had, the richer inner resources you have. Did you? Uh, sometimes, but, I mean, having said that, you're right. It ebbs and flows, 118 days. I mean, I could go through different movies that I like, but when I was threatened with executions on a regular basis, and sometimes it's, you know, it was really serious. And they really did pull the gun out? And no, no, that was, that was not done for me, with yeah. me, but that was done for many uh, yeah. 
prisoners. No, but I was threatened with execution on a regular basis. And I could not sustain myself sometimes. Sometimes I became delusional. Sometimes I became even suicidal. Uh, maybe a couple of times, or even, you know, for maybe three or four seconds, I thought I would just, you know, kill myself. But, uh, you know, then again, I had a mission in a prison in the interrogation room that I knew one day I would come out and I would write a book and I would speak about the experience. I never thought about the film because I never thought, you know, people in Hollywood would be interested in making a film about this. But, um, you know, the film is also part of that healing process for me that I'm talking about the issues. I'm trying to uh, make uh, something good out of that horrible experience. You named your main torture, Rosewater. Rosewater is the scent, the sweet-smelling scent that a lot of people in the uh, Muslim world use. In fact, the hijackers on 9-11 mostly shave their bodies and douse themselves with rose water. You, this film starts with your childhood experiences smelling it. I think that it's not too hard to read into it that it covers a stink, so that's a way to look exactly. at Rosewater. But did you name him that then? Was that helpful to give him that name in your head during the yeah, 180 days? Yeah, because, you know, yeah. what can... I mean, I, he's... Apparently, I mean, I looked into different names that he had, and some people, because he has thick glasses, uh, he doesn't have it in the film, but in reality, he had thick glasses. So people uh, called him Forite, uh and also he was very big, so they called him the big one, mm-hmm. uh, the big guy as well. And I called him in my head Mr. Rosewater because of that smell. I did not know his name. I did not know who he was. And in the past, I think, uh, decade or so, the Iranian government is doing something that they think is quite smart. And that is they send someone to come and arrest you. Mm-hmm. That person becomes your interrogator. After you're released... He threatens you that if you ever speak about what happened in prison, they can always punish you. And I met with my interrogator the night before I left for London. I live in London. And he said, if you ever talk about what happened in prison, we can always bring you back in a bag. And that way, they want to have ownership over you, not only in prison, but also after that. Even uh, on my first or second day when I was in prison, they didn't say that, you know, your specialist is waiting for you, your interrogator is waiting for you. They said your owner is waiting yeah. for you. Has anything happened to you tangible afterwards or just hearing They footsteps? met, uh, they threatened uh, my family. I mean, I was released uh, with $300,000 bail and my, I mean... Meaning you sold your apartment and you can never go back. And, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. I didn't sell my apartment. The apartment is, you know, oh, is the in their possession. The bail, yes, yeah. it's the collateral. And the apartment worth much more than $300,000 now, but it's in their uh, hands and they haven't done anything to it, but... No, it can you know, it's in their hands. Well, it's good that the movie's out and that you say this in interviews because maybe the next guy who leaves, uh, it won't weigh upon... If you go and live your life and have a successful life, it won't weigh upon him as much as, you know, they want it to. That threat, that last threat. Exactly. And since I have come out and I have talked about uh, the experience, many of my friends and colleagues who went through the same experience and were silent about it, they have come to me and they 
tell me that they really appreciate and they want to talk about it as well because they see me being on television, joking, and you know, being relatively unscathed. And they feel that they have been traumatized because they have kept that experience to themselves. Yeah. So they want to come out and they want to express themselves because that's that threat that they make on the last day that we can always punish you with the Iranian government, with that history that they have had some extraterritorial assassinations and, you know, kidnappings that, uh, you know, that's like a threat that's hanging over their heads. Yeah. Maybe your friends who've gone through the same experience secretly wonder what Latin American heartthrob will play them in the movie. Yes, they are all waiting for Javier Bardem <laughs> to, you know, or Pauly Shore. Why not? <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a, there's his a tr- acting uh, career, I'm <laughs> there's sure. There's just an endless trove of swarthy types to exactly. step up. Yes. Yeah. So one of the funniest things in the movie is when you talk to, and there's a lot of humor in the movie, it's directed by John Stewart, when you talk to your guard and try to explain, and I don't think, I don't know if this was helping your cause, what a stupid business model magazines are. <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts. <laughs> then the guy's obsession with this is porno or is that porno, is the Sopranos porno. All these little grace notes of humor, very much John Stewart, but also just talking to you now. And from what I've read, it seemed like that's how you That's all in the experience too. and yeah, in the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we did not uh, make up any jokes for the film except for one yeah the new jersey massage joke but that's the only one there's only one joke that john uh, and it was a new jersey joke so yes that was a john stewart one no the thing is that he my interrogator was fascinated with new jersey and there's a good reason for that because the iranian diplomats who come to new york to work at iran's mission at the united nation they cannot travel beyond the 20 mile uh radius of the, the diplomatic that, the community ends at yeah. that point. Yeah. And traditionally, the Iranian government has had some property in New Jersey. So these diplomats and their security, when they come to America, their American experience is a New Jersey experience. So when they go back home, they say New Jersey this, New Jersey that, New Jersey has good hospitals, New Jersey has good schools. And to many of their friends and colleagues, I guess with Mr. Rosewater, America equals New Jersey. Yeah, or, and, or New Jersey is the frontier. Beyond New Jersey is the unknown. Exactly. The forbidden fruit. Um, so we have this November 24th deadline. Perhaps there'll be some sort of breakthrough with uh, Iranian nuclear talks. I just was speaking with Robin Wright, the analyst and author, who said that if so, it would be the most significant foreign relations diplomatic achievement of the last six presidencies and yet it could some barriers could come from the american side i mean there is a lot of hurdles to clear but you know republicans in congress now republicans control congress might vote for more sanctions might want to scuttle this you know what would your advice be to them if they were to ask you what what should we do i think that would be disastrous but i don't think that a deal will be reached on november 24th because i think there are many people both in Iran and in the U.S., who benefit from the sanctions and from a lack of relationship between the U.S. and Iran. So I think the uh, negotiations will be extended for six months or one year, and the status quo will remain the same. Maziar Bahari, he is the uh, subject of the new movie opening this Friday, Rosewater. His book that the movie was based on is called Then They Came For Me. Yes. Thank you so much, Mr. Bahari. Well, thanks very much.
And now the spiel, the Gruber gaffe. This is John Gruber, who is unusual for an economist because he occasionally says things that are interesting, or at least honest, and therefore politically dangerous. Here, John Gruber at a 2013 conference, frankly saying that if the costs of the Affordable Health Care Act had been scored a certain way, there'd be no Affordable Health Care Act. You can't do it politically. You just literally cannot do it. Okay, transparent financing, and let's have transparent financing, also transparent spending. I mean, the, this bill was written in a tortured way to make sure CBO did not score the mandate as taxes. If CBO scored the mandate as taxes, the bill dies. Okay, so it was written to do that. In terms of, in terms of risk-rated subsidies, if you had a law which said healthy people are going to pay in, it made explicit that healthy people pay in and sick people get money, it would not have passed. Okay, just like the people, transparent, lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever. Now, the context for this talk, it was the kind of talk where the line, I don't do a very good Steve Parenti impersonation, got a pretty big laugh. Steve Parenti is a professor of finance and insurance. But it turns out that the claim, the general claim that Gruber was making within a room of people well-versed in economics, claiming that the mass public isn't well-versed in economics, didn't seem very notable to them right? Fair enough. It was dug out a year later by people who are opposed to Obamacare because there you do have an architect that's debatable. He's kind of an architect of Obamacare citing the stupidity of the American people. He says now he regrets the remarks. He doesn't say the American voter. Oh no, they're not stupid because the American voter is at least smart enough to see through that. You can't call the American voter stupid. What you can say is the American voter is hardworking. The American voter can't be expected to keep up with these complex issues. I agree with that. It's true. But if you do find anyone who's in high dudgeon about this, they'll probably be an opponent of Obamacare to begin with. But if you do find such a person who's upset that this economist said that people are ignorant of such concepts as risk-rated subsidies, ask that person this. Define risk-rated subsidy. Okay. And what he was saying, what Gruber was saying, that the way the bill was scored of course was designed to look as attractive as possible. Here's an equivalent argument. If Shatner hadn't worn a toupee and a girdle, no one would buy him as an action hero. That's true also. Blame it on the stupidity of the Star Trek viewer if you want. But this is what I find interesting about the whole affair. The statements that Gruber made are a subcategory of the Kinsley gaffe. Named for Michael Kinsley, former editor of Slate, he said a gaffe is when a politician gets into trouble for inadvertently speaking the truth. This is the Gruber gaffe. The Gruber gaffe is a slight tweak to the Kinsley gaffe. It is not about if it's true or not. It's about if the short little quote, which is always described as being taken out of context, really is a reflection of what the speaker thinks. We all want context. Oh, do we want context? We would all like your Twitter to be limited to 140 characters, but we'd like our tweets to include about 1,400 characters, and we'd also like thousands of followers. No, folks, prolixity is the enemy of popularity, Kanye West accepted. So some examples of this claim was taken out of context, yet it's actually perfectly reflective of the political figure's point of view. Like when Mitt Romney said 47% of Americans don't pay taxes. Guess what? He really meant that 47% of Americans don't pay taxes, and that's kind of true, and it's also kind of true that Mitt doesn't like that, and it's also kind of true he was saying that to appeal to the room he was in, just like Barack Obama was trying to appeal to the room he was in when he said during tough economic times, 
It's not surprising. People get bitter. They cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain their frustrations. Look, he was embarrassed that the quote got out, but he believes that. You can walk that quote all the way back to San Francisco. Doesn't mean you don't believe it. Or how about when Reverend Jeremiah Wright said, God damn America. You know what Reverend Jeremiah Wright meant? He meant God damn America. Or when Rand Paul said about the Civil Rights Act that there are 10 different titles in the Civil Rights Act. Nine of the 10 deal with public institutions. I'm in favor of that. One deals with private institutions. And had I been around, I would have tried to modify that. He believes that. He honestly believes that. Doesn't want to talk about his stance on the Civil Rights Act. Has said many, many things about how civil rights people are pioneers. Believes that too. But he's a libertarian. Poll the editors of Reason Magazine. What do they think about the private institution part of the Civil Rights Act or any bill like that? It's a cogent argument. That doesn't mean I believe it, but he definitely believes it. Remember when Todd Aiken said, If it's a legitimate rape, uh, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. I use this to demonstrate that the Gruber gaffe can be totally wrong. The rightness, the wrongness doesn't matter. But what matters is, does the speaker believe it? Todd Aiken believed it. Wish he hadn't said it. Cost him an election. He believes it. A feature of the Gruber gaffe is that they get picked up sometimes a year after they're said because they support a point of view that the listener objects to. There are a bunch of these around the war in Iraq. Like, you go to war with the army you have. Or when Andrew Card said, from a marketing point of view, you don't introduce new products in August. Man, did he get assailed. But guess what? The speakers believe those things. And you do go to war with an army you have. A lot of times, the phrases get blown up just because of a word. Binders full of women. Binders a funny word. And to an organization man like Mitt Romney, it's very helpful. Binders are great. Out of gone with trapper keepers full of dames. But if you look at bitter clinging. Those are insulting words. And I think that's what's going on. It's clear that that's what's going on with the current iteration of the Gruber gaffe. In fact, Gruber's actual gaffe. Stupid. The word stupid has really, really changed in our culture. It's now an extremely bad word. My children issue a sharp intake of breath if they hear the word stupid. They call it the S word. I played a clip of season one of Sesame Street to the little guys, and they were shocked when they heard Kermit say this to Cookie Monster. You big, <gasps> stupid, rotten monster! Of course, Kermit, committer of the Gruber gaffe, claimed he was taken out of context, whereas his blue furry colleague just clung to his oatmeal raisin and chocolate chips. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the Gist's producer, traded votes with 95% Invisible to boost listenership. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, wired overnight funds to the Onion AV Club's Podmass to boost mentions of the Gist. Didn't work. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers, booked the Gist to play in 120 degree heat in August, but allowed for frequent spritzing. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen in Stitcher or daily emails at slate.com slash gist email. We're on Yo. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. And you can email the gist at slate.com. I would like to introduce my new initiative to reach out to underserved gist communities. And therefore, I avoid the location of Gist Fest 2008 to the Vince Lombardi rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. What? Yes. 
Yes, it is true. I have a substantial interest in the TCBY there, but the award is above board. How dare you? Thanks for listening. <laughs>